Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week, we have Antoine Wilson on the show. He's a Canadian-American novelist and short story writer. He's actually been all over the world, and you'll learn a lot about him. We had a great conversation. He also read from his new book, Mouth to Mouth. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Thanks, Antoine, for joining me. All right, let's start the show. It takes me a while to boot up. Let's put it that way. I'm not a morning person, so I have to like it's like a computer that you know, like an old PC that has you know all the like the the BIOS and all the you know you see all those things loading as it as right. this thing is booting up. That's me in the morning. Yeah, I don't even have my operating system fully installed yet. The routine, you know, my ideal would be go to bed at two two thirty in the morning. You know, sleep till nine thirty, take care of whatever and start writing at 4.30 in the afternoon. That's what I think, physiologically, that's my ideal. However, I have young children, so I go to bed at 10-something, I wake up at 6.45, gotta get them out to school, and then there's a window before pickup when I can get something done. So I've sort of had to force myself to, and, and it's not, you know, it's, it's, this is not uh, digging ditches by hand, this, you know, but just force <laughs> myself to create conditions in the in the morning that helped me pick up from the day before yeah that's smart that's very adult of you to do thanks that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took a while you know it took a while to figure it out so maybe that's the adulting was earned even though i have plans on my calendar i wake up not knowing where the hell i am <laughs> same same it's like yeah you got to reinvent yourself every morning so if we have to reinvent ourselves every morning that makes us well, it actually puts you in an interesting spot for writing an unreliable narrator. You know, if you were telling the story of your life, where would the unreliability creep in, do you think? Well, I wouldn't know, would I? <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of unreliability that I'm most interested in, not the sort of literary device necessarily, but there's a part of our brains that's called the left brain interpreter, 
and it's a sort of generator of the reasons why we do things, explanations. And the brain, the, the consciousness, whatever, is sort of a lot of different bits and pieces all sort of clamoring for attention and working together or working at cross purposes. This guy, Michael Gazaniga, did some experiments in the 70s and onwards with split brain patients where they took the corpus callosum, which connects the left and the right half of the brain, and they split it to control ep epileptic seizures in the patients. And then they realized they got these people who would otherwise behave normally, they realized they could run a few different experiments where they didn't behave normally. You could address just one hemisphere and get these strange results. And one of the classic ones, they divide the visual field so that the right brain sees the word walk, I think it was, and the person gets up and starts walking and then they say, hey, why did you get up and start walking? And then the person says, oh, I, I just was going to get a Coke. <laughs> you know? And so there it is. It's just like this, this thing, unbeknownst to the, the person, uh, you know, an impulse or a command is in there, is in the brain, then they do the thing and then afterward, why did they do it, you know? And I see this in my mm -hmm. my daughter, especially when she was little. Mm -hmm. She'd come up with reasons for things, and I and I I haven't, you know, the parental overview picture of everything that's gone on mm -hmm. in the moments preceding it. And I'm like, this is she's she's making up the reason, and she doesn't know it. So I th I think that that applies to you know those of us whose brains are connected bilaterally. We we do come up with narratives to explain how we got to where we are today. And that's at the core of the question of sort of unreliability of Jeff's story in the novel. How much does Jeff believe his own story, this thing that he's pitching to the narrator of sort of how he got to where he is today? This is from my, uh, my novel, Mouth to Mouth. And essentially what's happened so far is our narrator, who's anonymous, a writer, a schlubby writer on his way to Berlin has bumped into somebody that he knew in college. And this guy is now a fancy art dealer. And he invites our narrator up to the first class lounge to tell him a story about uh, sort of how he became a fancy art dealer and what happened in these years after college. So this section is when Jeff Cook, as he's named, has been out of college a few years. And I think the rest of it will speak for itself. One morning, Jeff awoke to the sound of air whistling through G's nose, only to discover that the source of the sound had been his own nose, congested, and that he was alone. Since they'd broken up, he had found himself remembering and cherishing things he couldn't have imagined caring about when they were still together. Such was the case with the whistling sound G sometimes made when deeply asleep. The part of him that loved her most tenderly, like the love one might feel for a small, fragile animal, had been activated for him by memories of the nocturnal whistling, faint and rhythmic and above all suffused with a vulnerability she didn't display in waking life, perhaps because she herself was small, a few inches above five feet, barely a hundred pounds. When her breath coursed through the tiny gap in her sinuses or septum or nose itself, it sang a song of shields down, of a kind of sweetness she rarely allowed him to see. 
the nose from which that song issued, a wonderfully convex, bridged, slightly out of proportion nose, balanced on either side by freckles. Only later did he realize that people must have treated her like a child. That nose became for him a special feature, which by interrupting her otherwise delicate beauty, enhanced it. He thought about going back to bed. In that bed, the actor's bed, he and G had run through baby names, joke names, pure hubris, but acknowledged as such, which he thought might lend them a little protection. In that bed, in that house, they had played at adult life, pretending that they had furnished it themselves, that the art on the walls had been purchased on impossibly expensive trips to far-off destinations. The duck painting, picked up on La Rambla in Barcelona. The kilim from a man with shaky hands in Istanbul. He would pretend not to know where the dishes had come from, and she would spin a tale of their origins. In creating a glamorous past, they were also envisioning a glorious future. Now, though, everything vibrated with false provenance. The house echoed with associations both fictional and real, the lightest and most playful now the most oppressive. He needed out. He dressed, climbed into his old Volvo, and drove west toward Santa Monica. The sun was not yet up. From atop the bluffs, the beach was a dark gray strip, the ocean black. In the dark, he walked across the pedestrian bridge over PCH, from one pool of light to the next. The beach lot was empty, nobody around other than a cyclist whizzing past, chasing an amber beam emanating from a box on his handlebars. The sky was deep brown-black, low clouds reflecting the city's light back onto itself. A distant lump in the sand was either a nuzzling couple or a sleeping homeless person. The immensity of the ocean was already having an effect on him, diminishing the size of his problems, connecting him to everything elemental and all but eternal. He took off his shoes and socks, then stepped barefoot onto the cold sand, feeling a sense of liberation at his own insignificance, while also feeling, because he was alone, because it was dark, because the entire city lay behind him asleep, a sense of himself as a sort of local god, surveying his domain under a cloak of invisibility and omnipotence, two sides of the same coin. He sat at the water's edge, the dry sand just above the high tide line, and the cold seeped through the seat of his pants. He could make out the horizon, splitting the view, the most distant visible thing on earth. He fantasized about being dropped off out there, halfway to Japan, treading water, succumbing to exhaustion. He didn't know then that from his vantage, the seemingly infinitely distant line was less than two nautical miles away. He was no better at estimating the dimensions of his heartbreak. With G, he'd felt like he was going somewhere, building a life, and now he felt like he'd been sent back to the starting line. As absurd as it would seem to him later, and actually impossible to recreate in his memory, to recapture the intensity of it, G's absence from his life felt unrelenting and ever-present. The first thing he thought of upon waking, and the last thing he thought of before sleep descended. A glow simmered behind him, Fiat Lux, 
a slow reveal, coaxing sea and sky from the void. Another day begun. Pelicans skimmed the slick water. The hazy outline of a ship appeared in the channel. Nearby seagulls squabbled over a piece of cellophane. High tide crests peaked, but didn't break until they met the shore. Ripples crossing the ocean from whatever storm had drummed them up. A rising of the waters, energy passed from one molecule to another like a baton in a relay, transmitted all this way only to fizzle out on the sand. Just passing through, said a voice inside his head, source unknown, probably a bumper sticker. This happened sometimes, a voice or a song appeared in his thoughts, unbidden but germane to whatever was going on in the moment, as if he didn't have one mind, but many and his consciousness worked more like an orchestra conductor than a generator of its own ideas. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught a dark form on the surface of the water. He was pretty sure it hadn't been there a moment before. A clump of kelp? No, a swimmer, making for the shore. An arm slapping the water, then drifting, as if scanning the bottom like a snorkeler without a snorkel, but then not. The swimmer undulated with the passing swell. The lack of muscle tension signaled to Jeff that something was wrong. He stood to watch, expecting the swimmer's arm to rise to slap the water again, or his head to turn for a breath, but nothing happened. He went to flag a lifeguard, but the towers were shuttered. Up and down the beach, there was only a single woman jogging, too distant to take notice. He hadn't yet faced a moment like this in his life, one in which he knew with certainty that the crisis at hand was his alone to deal with, one during which he wished for the intercession of the God he didn't believe in, or anyone who might know what to do, or even someone as clueless and panicked as himself who could by their presence share the burden. It was one of those crucial moments, one which when reflected on wouldn't be laughed off but would send a chill up his spine, because even if he felt that he had no choice, that anyone would have done what he did in that situation, he would have to acknowledge that he was being tested, because in truth, he could have given up, could have despaired, could have walked away, could have pretended he hadn't seen what he'd seen, could have subtracted himself from the scenario, told himself that he wasn't even there, that he'd left a moment too early or arrived a moment too late, that the predicament had not in fact fallen in his lap, but only grazed him as it passed undisturbed and unaddressed, left to unfold by itself as nature might have intended. In college, I was pre-med. I worked as an EMT, so I saw a lot of that kind of relationship. I've always just been interested in this weird power dynamics that can come up when somebody's rescuing somebody else, even if it's like an, you know, an emotional rescue or something like that. Mm -hmm. People who white knight their way into other people's lives. Also from surfing, uh, just help people out in the water. It's just a, I don't know, it's an interesting dynamic. And, and specifically once in 97, I was up in Seattle visiting with a couple friends and we were down at by the water for Fleet Week, I think it's called. We are checking out the ships and stuff. And I stopped somebody from walking in front of a train. There was a guy who was walking along with headphones on, air drumming, 
and just, you know, his head was in the clouds and he was about to step right into the path of a freight train. And I got his attention and then I managed to get him to stop and then the train went by just like whoosh right not far in front of him. And he turned to me and he said, oh my God, you saved my life. And then he said, I'm going to buy you a big steak dinner. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And then the train finished going by and then he just literally just like kept going, kept air drumming, just walked away. So, So you never got that steak dinner? I never got my steak dinner, so you know that's that's the things we make uh, fiction out of, right? The the alternate universe where I would get my my steak dinner. It's funny because that particular experience didn't sort of nick me deeply, but it was it was something that I always thought was would be a fun premise. And so when I first started noodling on the story, it was a literal guy saves a guy from drowning and and uh, gets a steak dinner out of it and keeps asking for more steak dinners. <laughs> <laughs> which was, you know, like a fun concept, but it wasn't a good story. And so, so um, eventually I, I, got, I got away from the steak dinner thing. So that sat with you for a long time and kind of what was that missing piece for you when, you when you did return to it and you were like, this is fiction that I'm going to dive into? It's that, that, uh, that relationship between someone who's, who's saved and someone who's doing the saving, as well as what happens to you when you know mortality comes knocking the water was so cold it took his breath away he felt like he was unable to get enough air into his lungs. Nevertheless, he made for the body, stomping through the shallows in his underwear and t-shirt, and then swimming, thinking that the man was probably okay, that he was being foolish, that the man would pop his head up at any moment and bring to an end what would forever become an embarrassing story about Jeff's tendency to jump to conclusions, to act before considering consequences. These thoughts alternated round Robin with others, equally powerful and clear, that this man was dead, and had been dead a long time and was only drifting to shore. But hadn't he seen an arm slap the water? The cold bit into his hands and feet, and though he swam with his head up, he tasted seawater with every stroke. When he reached the body, he hesitated to touch it. What if it sprang to life and dragged him down with the last of its energy, as drowning people were said to do? He took hold of a shoulder and tried to flip the man onto his back, but without being able to touch the bottom, he couldn't get the leverage he needed. He grabbed the man's hand and towed him the short distance to shore, swimming an awkward one-armed breaststroke, scanning the beach for anyone he could call on for help. At the inshore ditch, He went underwater and shoved the body from below, using a ripple of swell to propel it onto the sand. It rolled, came to rest on its back, limbs folded awkwardly as if it had fallen from a height. He stood before it, a middle-aged man in a slick swimmer's wetsuit, tinted goggles, bluish skin, purple lips. He had thought of him as both a he and an it a man and a body, but now the form on the sand had resolved into a human being, a he, definitively. 
No sign of breathing, and he had no idea how to take a pulse. He didn't dare remove the goggles for fear of revealing eyes wide open but unseeing. He dragged him away from the water's edge, wavelets erasing the track he left in the sand. The jogger was closer now but not yet upon them. The closest telephone was at the beach lot. If he had run back then to dial 911, would anyone have blamed him? He had seen CPR on television but had no idea how it was really done. He put his hands on the man's chest, locked his elbows, and pumped. The sternum felt like a spring-loaded plate. Water leaked from the side of the man's slack mouth. He counted the compressions uselessly, not knowing when to stop. He knew what came next and didn't hesitate. The lips were cold, the stubble rough. He blew into the man's mouth and water sprayed onto his cheek. He had neglected to pinch the nose. The chest rose and fell with his breath, but only as a bellows fills and empties. The skin looked no less blue. A feeling of disgust threatened to overtake him, spurred by the idea that he wouldn't be able to save this man, meaning he wasn't breathing air into a human being who needed help, but into a corpse. The jogger appeared, stopping in her tracks 20 feet away. He cried at her to get help, and she ran toward the highway. He returned to pumping the chest. Something cracked under the heel of his hand, and with each subsequent compression he could feel the break in the bone. Salt water poured thick and foamy from the man's mouth. Nobody would have blamed Jeff for giving up. He wiped the foam aside with the back of his hand and breathed for the swimmer again, trying not to retch. Then to the sternum, the compressions, trying to put out of his mind the feeling of bone scraping against bone. A seagull stood in the sand not five feet away, watching, its eye black like a wet seed. Jeff tried to think of himself as a machine, doing the job of the man's heart and lungs, an incessant cycle of breaths and compressions. This went on and on. He wondered when it would be okay to stop. But stopping would mean leaving the man for dead. He couldn't do that. It wasn't who he was. Someone else would have to come. Someone who could take over. A professional, maybe. Who could look at this body and determine that there was no saving him and bear the burden of giving up. When would that person arrive? Overcome with exhaustion but seeing no other choice, Jeff continued the compressions, the breaths. The body convulsed. The swimmer gasped for air and coughed a cough unlike any Jeff had ever heard, sharp and wet at the same time. He rolled away from Jeff, vomited in the sand, moaned, tore off his goggles, vomited again. Jeff sat paralyzed, exhausted, and in awe, confused as to what to do next. He heard the blood coursing through his ears. His gut twisted. He started to shiver. Spectators materialized. Had they been watching from a distance? 
One asked if the swimmer was okay. Jeff didn't answer. He wasn't even sure they were asking him. A lifeguard truck rolled up, lights flashing. An old-timer emerged from the cab, red jacket, red shorts, ruddy face, silver mustache, moving with the equanimity of a lion on the veldt. He crouched by the swimmer, asked questions. What was his name? Did he know where he was? The day of the week? The mumbled responses were inaudible to Jeff. The lifeguard wrapped the swimmer in a gray wool blanket. Two medics in wraparound sunglasses came marching across the sand, each carrying an orange case, their ambulance idling in the beach lot behind them. Help had arrived and was continuing to arrive. The swimmer tried to sit up, groaning in pain, but was kept supine by the medics who affixed an oxygen mask to his face. Jeff asked for a blanket, and it took a moment for the lifeguard to recognize that the long-haired young man before him in t-shirt and boxers had been involved and was soaked and hypothermic. He fetched another blanket from the truck and tossed it to Jeff. Jeff pulled it tight over his shoulders. The lifeguard then turned his attention to Jeff, and Jeff stood to answer his questions. Dennis, per the name tag, though, whether it was a first or last name was never revealed, asked him to describe what had happened. Jeff saw that Dennis's mustache wasn't entirely silver, but had patches of yellow in it. As Jeff ran down everything that had occurred, he watched Dennis's eyes go from squinting to wide open his crow's feet stretching to reveal little folds of paler skin usually hidden from the sun. Dennis said that the swimmer had been very fortunate that Jeff had been on the beach. This could have been a very different call, he said, as if concerned mainly with the progress of his morning. The swimmer clutched his chest and moaned again. Dennis went to the truck to pull out a wooden board with straps attached to it. He and the medics started securing the swimmer to it. The swimmer turned his gaze to Jeff for the first time. With the oxygen mask on his face, he was the inverse of the man Jeff had pulled from the water, nose and mouth now covered, eyes exposed, one lid slightly drooping, whether congenital or from the trauma, it was impossible to say. His eyes were light, blue or green, and together with his furrowed brow conveyed puzzlement. He raised his arm a few inches as if he might point at Jeff or make some other gesture, but a medic guided it back down and strapped him in. I saved your life, Jeff wanted to say, but it was for the swimmer to say, not him. More people gathered to see what was going on, and in an effort to get closer, a few moved in front of Jeff. Dennis and the medics loaded the swimmer onto the back of the truck. With the tailgate down and a medic on either side, they rolled toward the beach lot. The onlookers returned to whatever they'd been doing with their morning, and Jeff was left alone. He gathered his pants, his socks, his shoes, the trail of panic he'd left on his way into the water. He peeled off his soaked shirt and, under the blanket, his underwear. Then he pulled on his dry pants. The ambulance left the beach lot, sirens howling, and the lifeguard truck U-turned away from the lot. 
Jeff stood, expecting it to return to him, but after heading his way for a moment, it turned south toward the pier. Perhaps Dennis hadn't seen him standing there, or had been called away to handle another emergency. Jeff collected his shoes, shirt, and underwear, then trudged across the sand to the spiral ramp that led to the pedestrian bridge. Joggers and walkers gave him wide berth. None would meet his eye. Wrapped in a rough wool blanket, barefoot, with disheveled long hair, shirtless, he must have looked like just another of the hard luck cases wandering aimlessly around that so-called paradise. Hey, we're hanging out with Antoine Wilson today on Storybound. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to Storybound with Antoine Wilson today, and we are discussing his book Mouth to Mouth, as well as a whole host of other things. I'm from Montreal originally, and then when I was seven, I moved to Central California uh, with my family to a place called Madeira, a small town, farm town. After four years, we came to Santa Monica. Then we were in Saudi Arabia, and then we came back to Santa Monica. So sort of consistently middle school onward mm -hmm. in Santa Monica, and then I went to Iowa for graduate school and taught at Wisconsin for a year on a fellowship and then came back. And, and I went to UCLA, so a lot of West Coast time. I have to ask, yeah. how do you go from Santa Monica to Saudi Arabia and back to Santa Monica? Well, my father was an orthopedic surgeon and the doctor that sort of lured him down from Central California to Santa Monica in the first place, he worked with him for a year and then he just really thought the sort of situation overall was kind of shady that it was a bit of a surgery mill and that he, it wasn't what he wanted to do. Now, any other person might have decided to hang a shingle of their own or find another orthopedic surgeon to work with, but my dad saw an ad or a friend of his pointed out an ad in the back of one of the orthopedic magazines, you know, come work in Saudi Arabia, work and teach there. So off we went. And this is just my dad always had this real sense of adventure slash running away from his problems. and. It was supposed to be a five-year gig, mm -hmm. and then toward the end of the first year, he caught hepatitis B from a patient. He cut his finger and in surgery, and he ended up almost dying. We, he went to England to recover, and then we mm -hmm. went to England for a summer while he was recovering, and then uh, it was either go back to Quebec or go back to Santa Monica, and my mom put her foot down and was sort of like, I don't care if we don't, you know, like we kind of blew our nest egg having to deal with this medical problem and she's like i don't care we're, we're going back to santa monica that's sort of paradise and that's where we ended up to live with a narrative for a very long time and then to also add on to it i'm i guess i'm talking about 
our own personal narratives and and this is jumping on your thoughts about unreliability after a while I do get that sense sometimes that the narrative I've been telling myself for so long that maybe just because I've been telling it for so long that that has cemented it as truth in my head and to some extent or to some extent or to all of it I'm completely wrong I'm seeing things completely wrong right right and it becomes the small version of that we call shtick right Mm. that's my Mm shtick somebody has a shtick and then they realize wow my shtick isn't really true anymore because yeah I had this little this little habit behavior thought loop thing that worked for the moment but now is not true that's why every year I get blasted on a massive ba- uh, bag of mushrooms and uh, reset my brain. I, I don't. No. I don't. I, I wish I don't. I wish I could. I kind of. I wish I did because I think there's some people who actually do something, you know, something similar, not every year, but it doesn't hurt to do something, whether something as small as a vacation, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some time alone to shake up all of those ideas of who you are that um, have maybe calcified. Okay, so then what do I do? I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you for help. What do I do if my shtick is mm. constantly, my shtick is shaking myself up and not knowing who I am and not knowing what my shtick is? Oh shit, that's very meta. That's like, yeah, that's like saying like my, going to the therapist and saying my problem is that I, I go to the therapist. <laughs> well, there was a very scary time where I would experience uh, delusions at one point in my life. It was a very, very small period of time where I, I experienced like symptoms uh, akin to psychosis, but not quite to that degree. Yeah. And I would go to my therapist and we'd talk about it. And he would console me. We would talk about emergency plans if that happens again. And then I started discussing with him the thought that every time he was trying to talk me out of it and keeping in mind psychosis is where you distrust your entire reality you think uh-huh. that uh, there were periods of time where i did i was very convinced that nothing was happening nothing that was happening was real where i was didn't actually exist i didn't exist whatever it was a it was a, it was a, a fear and traumatic response so then i was telling my therapist every time he wanted to tell me things were going good it was as if he was an agent of the illusion that this reality right. is, and he was just operating to keep me keep me contained within it. Yeah. That now all of a sudden I'm distrusting this person that is actually trying to walk me off that ledge, so to speak. Yeah, that's like a, vi- a vicious cycle of of paranoid delusion. There's there's my shtick right there. Yeah. When I was younger, there was a period in Central California, and I think this is a prob- probably a function of having, you know, been basically a little French Canadian boy thrown into this like farm town um, atmosphere. And then my older, uh, one of my older half brothers was murdered the year that we moved there too. So there was, there was a lot of strange stuff going on, but I believed, half believed, I don't know. I feel like I believed it, that, that it was possible that everybody around me were automatons and that I was being tested directly by God, Hmm. you know, a sort of solipsistic phase, a mini uh, paranoid delusion. Yeah, I mean, my father had a lot of delusions, and that was mostly just because, I don't know, he, he he did something very similar where he thought everything was 
just a giant test for him. And he could never really mm-hmm. escape that, the confines of that, and actually just get out of the fact that, you know, maybe there maybe there's a different way of looking at this. And so I do feel comforted and saddened at the same time when I see someone, especially someone I care about, that they are trapped in that and they can't they can't really see out of it, but I can't off, yeah. yeah, I can't tell them otherwise. But with your father, I'm just curious, what, who was doing the testing? Was he religious, or was it just? He was very religious uh, up to yeah. the very end too. He, his father was a pastor, and so uh. my dad really wanted to live up to that, and he had basically gotten himself involved in pretty much every imaginable darkness you could think by he was 22 and he couldn't hold the job down. He was very charismatic and had a lot of relationships. I was one of three siblings that, that he that he fathered. Not fathered in terms of was presently there. He was presently there for the mm-hmm. first four years of my life, but then we spent 17 years apart, and during that time, his parents said he needed help. They kicked him out on the streets. He was homeless, and him and I got to meet each other again when I was like 23. Oh, wow. And that was weirdly, I, I would love to think of a better word than traumatic or triggering or any of that, but it was like, how do I, I I'm going to say hi to this person and call him dad, and he has all these same mannerisms as me, and, yeah. and I'm 23 and just got out of college. God, I hope I don't turn out like him. <laughs> right, right. You know, and he was still very much in his eyes, in God's hands, even though his his father was dead at that point, his mother was suffering from dementia at that time, and he felt that he got everything he very much deserved. Yeah, well, I mean, those people, you say his father was dead, but those people live on inside us, right? Yes. I mean, that's, especially people you don't see every day, even when they're alive, they're, they're alive inside us the same way they are after they've gone. Right, we still carry the image around inside us of that person and and their influence on us. Now it was a while ago. I actually did read the story about your brother. He was seventeen when he was murdered, right? Uh, nineteen. Yeah. Nineteen. And did you have a relationship with him at the time where he still lives with you today? Uh, no, he. We never lived together. He was a half brother, so he was mm-hmm. with the uh, sort of the first three boys, and I was the first of the next three boys with the second wife. Mm-hmm. But with each of my older half brothers, because I was young, I sort of associated them with certain things. And with him, he had this great uh, Volkswagen camper van, which is in the end what he was murdered for. Mm-hmm. But I associated him with that. And whenever he came to visit us in Montreal, especially, you know, we'd go ask him to pop the camper and open it up. So it's very, the version of him in my mind is is very much a sort of a combination of a child's, you know, version of an older half-brother figure, and then later, you know, later stories about him that I heard and later photographs and things. So he doesn't, um, he, he's not sort of, yeah, he's not sort of hanging out in, in between my ears in the same way like my father is. Isn't it strange how the, how your concept of that person changes based on your child's self-remembering of them, and then everyone yeah. else's telling of them and then that's how you're supposed to piece together who this person was. And they do mean something to you, but it's very weird that they're a combination of not as many close interpersonal interactions that you would with other people that that mean a lot to you, that you understand. Yeah, and I think it's also strange to experience a loss like that at that age because 
you just sort of look at everything very literally when you're seven, especially because he wasn't sort of somebody that was in my daily life, right? So that aspect of it hadn't, my life hadn't been turned upside down directly, right? Mm -hmm. My father's, I think, had. But it's only when you're older, not necessarily even when you have kids of your own or anything like that, but it's when you're older that you understand the depth of who that person was. You develop an idea of who other people are, and you get more of a sense of who he was in the world. And you know, you're you reach the age that he was when he died, and mm-hmm. then move past it. You know, and I think the, those sort of earth-shattering things sometimes um, people can have childhood traumas that they don't process. In childhood, they process it literally because they don't know any different kind of, and it's like, oh, that happened, and then that sort of trauma loops back as you gain experience because the experience comes to bear on on those events mm-hmm. after the fact. I've started reliving a lot of those feelings as a kid. I think just, mm-hmm. just through co-parenting and seeing mm-hmm. how they respond to anything. It's reminding me of, oh, this is how I felt in this moment. This is who I was then. That's sort of trippy because I used to think I had a pretty good handle on remembering events in my life and my emotions and all of that, but the fact that I'm still remembering things about myself in those regards, and and I think in effect too, the grief that I carry about my father is just sort of always going to be there. Yep. It's just going to transform, really. Yeah, one big thing that hit me with my son, was my son is older than my daughter, so he was the first child, was I became reacquainted with innocence as just a childless adult in my, just up to about, you know, in my early 30s, I guess, I had, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a sardonic view of of innocence. And then coming across it in a child, I was like, oh, wow, this is is really a thing. You know, Mm -hmm. this is really like his eyes are just wide open and he's open to the world and he has no idea Mm -hmm. about any of the dark things Mm -hmm. that can happen. And I think I kind of worked through some of that with the, my first novel did sort of revolve around something similar to my brother's murder. And, you know, and I look back at him and, at 19 and his sense of innocence. I mean, a 19 year old, technically an adult, but also, you know, I look at 19 year olds and they're, they're kids, man. They're, oh, yeah. they're just, just going out into the world. And then in, in Panorama City, my second novel, that sort of innocence is, is manifest, I think, in the, in the narrator. Thanks so much for sticking around. We've got one more commercial break, and then after the break, we'll hear more of our conversation with Antoine. You're listening to Storybound with Antoine Wilson, and this is the rest of our conversation that we had divulging from his book, Mouth to Mouth. It's one of those things where your imagination can run away with you, right? Because there are a million different things that can happen to a person. Mm-hmm. And many of the things that pop up in the news or elsewhere, because they're remarkable and exceptional, are extremely rare. And yet, I think it can be easy to worry that something like that is going to befall you or your kids. And then you have to snap out of it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't have a idea of what it's supposed to look like to be a father who listens because just there was just no guy who stood up for me in that way growing up. 
and right. and all my sibling relationships were half siblings as well, but half siblings that I didn't live with and didn't have really any communication with until I was in my twenties, and it just didn't ever yeah. coalesce into like a meaningful relationship. So to see my two stepdaughters, you know, they have each other, and they have me in their lives. And it was a very, it was funny. I asked my oldest the other day, I, we just, sometimes we like to ask big questions. You know, like she went, she told, she asked me, what is the biggest number that we've discovered so far? Oh, nice. I love questions like that. So then I asked her in return the other day, how do you know any of this is real? Yeah. You know, how do you know you're not dreaming? And her answer was very simple. She says, well, because uh, Sissy's here, my mom's here, our cats are here, you're here, there's cars in the parking lot. She's like, that's how, that's how I know. Ah, interesting. Yeah, my daughter talks about this all the time because she has uh, all kinds of, she has a vivid dream life and she's afraid of nightmares and stuff. But she talks about dreams in which everything seems pretty normal. Um, but then how she knows that, that she does know it's a dream. And yeah, she just talks about the, the vibe. Yeah, I, I had a very uh, huge dream life as a kid. That's uh, like my imagination sometimes just got so, car it was like I could get really carried away with me. I think maybe that served me less in my 20s and more as a kid. It was like a little, you know, safe hiding place. So that yeah. that's something that's really big that we like to value is just keeping our internal worlds very safe. Yeah. And knowing that, hey, if you have all these feelings, like this, is, these are things you can do to uh, feel better. Yeah. You know, keep your internal world very safe. I mean, yeah, listen, listening to the kids and letting them have their feelings, right? I mean, these are not earth-shattering <laughs> concepts, but for some reason, I feel like in looking back a few generations in parenting, these were not things that, that people were doing. Keep them out of sight, out of mind, and if they're having a tantrum or something, tell them that that's a bad thing. Sure. <laughs> you, you're right. It doesn't, it's, they're not earth-shattering things. But now that we're employing these, I do believe it will have earth-shattering effects. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so as well. Yeah. That's my hope. Yeah. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Likewise. This, is, this has gone to places I hardly imagined. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my shtick. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. I love it. Anything in particular about since this has come out? Has, have you had anyone write to you? Did it speak to them in a certain way or anything bizarre happened since it's been published? Uh, yeah, I mean, I had I had a couple of people write to me who had saved people from drowning uh, or one of them had saved somebody. And I don't remember what the context was. Maybe. Yeah, it was a CPR, like a heart attack on the street type of thing. And they very much connected with the physical aspects of that experience. And then they sort of alluded to having a strange ongoing relationship with this person whose life they saved because they both live in this small town or something like that. Hmm. And then I got the sense that that person actually didn't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> they, they'd read some article or something, so or, or an excerpt, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, I, guess. I, I don't know. To me, the strangest thing is that it's been described as a thriller. That's sort of not necessarily what, uh, or not what I intended when I was writing it, sure. you never know how something will be received. Sure. But New York Times kind of kicked it off, I think. And then from there, a lot of people picked up that baton and they're like, literary thriller, which, you know, it could be good. It's good for sales. <laughs> sure. But then I don't want to disappoint people who are a real thriller aficionados and make them feel like they're not, yeah, I'm not hitting their genre points. That's you know? so funny because when I asked you, I was going off of Matt Keeley, who works on our staff here. Uh, he always comes up with good 
thoughtful questions and mm-hmm. I always ask around before I jump into a conversation. I go, hey, anyone have any last minute thoughts, something that I haven't thought of? And he had pulled that quote, the thriller. And yeah. I hadn't, even as I was talking about it, I'm thinking, I don't think of this as a thriller. So that's so funny to think, you said the New, the New York Times, just that was where it started? Yeah, they put they put it in a, like the holiday gift guide uh, in, a, in a roundup of reviews of thrillers and mysteries. You know, a, a lovely, got a lovely review, but it was also just sort of, I think, the sort of a standard bearer, and it was before publication. Mm. So I think a lot of people probably looked to that and then saw, were like, okay, this is a literary thriller, whatever that is. Okay, well, I'm cutting together the episode this week, and I'll make sure to put enough suspenseful, looming, <laughs> looming music all throughout. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks again, Antoine. This was great. All right, thanks, Jude. It's been fantastic talking to you. Likewise. Antoine Wilson. Another fun conversation. That's what this season has been for me. I hope it's been a good time listening. I know for some of you it's different. We appreciate you sticking with us through all these changes. We've got another couple, a handful of episodes coming your way at least halfway through the summer. A couple of them are just straight readings, just like with Dante Stewart, Phil Klein, Daniel Sherrill. It's fun, right? I'm very lucky to have this show in my life especially with a month like May has been and usually is. Antoine and I chatted on the 17th like a week before some absolutely fucked up off on this one down and I needed this episode to pick me up. Sometimes I don't realize it until I'm in the edit and it's like these conversations are living things. They take on new meaning and a whole new time and space and I hope they can be that for you. You listening this far into the episode? No, my stupid rant? Well, it means maybe we're getting something right. Thank you to Antoine Wilson. You can purchase a copy of his gripping, on-the-edge-of-your-seat suspense thriller, Mouth to Mouth, available now at your favorite local bookseller. Thank you to Kimberly Burns at Broadside PR, Alexandra Primiani, and our friends at Simon & Schuster, and Epidemic Sound. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Podglomerate. Social media help from Sylvia Beltil. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mix and engineer is Tim Carplus. This episode's editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, hosting, mixing, and mastering were done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday. See you then. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.